Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. My name's Nick. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. As Neil said, it is uh, spring break next week of Fullerton, so the stewards are taking a break. That's where they are. My wife has not left me. They're in Texas. I know, shock, surprise. They are in Texas visiting at the throne of Joanna Gaines. And uh, so that's what they're doing this morning. And the the Johnsons are also taking some time off. But thank you guys uh, for being here. We are in our uh, part three of On This Rock, I Will Build My Church. And um, we started uh, in the process where Jesus had taken his disciples to Caesarea and Philippi. And he asked them the question, uh, who do people say that I am? And, uh, and then we know that we covered this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Simon Peter makes the declaration that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, and he is applauded and he is lauded for that. And then last week we covered the fact that even though he made the correct confession, he really didn't understand what that meant. And so he had to be corrected because he didn't want Jesus Uh, to carry his cross, to die, which was the purpose for which Jesus was on this planet. So this week, we are looking at what happens six days after that. So Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Then he pulls Jesus aside. Peter does, and he says, no, 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 don't go to Jerusalem. You you don't want to die. You don't want to suffer. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have the things of of, of God in mind, but the things of man. And he puts Peter in his place. Now, this is six days later. I'm reading from Matthew 17, verses 1 to 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. A number of years ago, I, uh, I was invited on a ministry trip um, by my mentor and uh, senior pastor, and uh, I was so excited. It was just me and him, 
and we were going to get on this plane, and so I was going to show how clever I was, you know. And so I had all these questions, and I was asking him all these questions, and, you know, what about this, and what do you think about that, and what do you think about this? And, and so probably for about half an hour, I just kept pestering him and pestering him and pestering him, and even, I, I even missed the nonverbal cue when you're sitting in an airplane and someone puts their earphones in. What does that mean? Leave me alone, right? Missed that, completely missed that. So, so what I would do is I would ask him a question and he would ignore me and then I would tap him on the shoulder, you know. Did you not hear what I was saying? And so, so eventually 15 minutes into it, he leans over and he gives me this book and he says, why don't you read this book, you know? Didn't get it. The next time, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to learn from this. I mean, I was embarrassed. I'm going to learn from this. And, uh, and so we had a, uh, a, a great theologian, Dr. Michael Eaton, and he came and he spoke, and he's one of my heroes. He's, uh, he's written like a commentary on the first seven chapters of Romans that's about this big, but he's also written a commentary for African pastors because he lives in Kenya that's about this big. So his... His, I mean, talk about an egghead. He is amazing. So I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to talk very much. I'm going to learn from my previous experience, and I'm going to be very precise in my question asking. And so we sat down for lunch with Michael Eaton. Some of you will, will know, and Alan was there, and Ryan Marshall was there, and uh, we sat down for lunch. And Michael Eaton is like uh, what was. He's now with the Lord. But he was incredibly, incredibly intelligent, a gift to the church, but not much of a conversationalist. And, uh, and so I sat there and I said to him, so, um, so Michael, in your commentary in Romans, you say that uh, because Israel was cut off, we got welcomed into the kingdom. And I was like, he's going to be so impressed by this. You know? And he said, no, I didn't. And I was like, I don't know what to say. And then he proceeds with photographic memory to tell me exactly what he stated in the book, which was not unlike what I said, to be clear, but wasn't precisely what I said. Embarrassed yet again. Okay? So when I read this portion of scripture about Peter, I can imagine Peter six days later saying, okay, I messed up before. I am going to learn from this. Swing and a miss, right? Swing and a miss. Because here Peter is, and um, this, this cloud comes down, and he doesn't know what to do. In fact, in, in Mark's gospel, which we know is Peter scribing to Mark about his experience with Jesus, um, there, there is this uh, verse in, in verse 6 where he says, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Did it ever occur to Peter not to say anything at all? Well, I can say, as someone that is, um, that is generally a reactionary talker, Cornell, that no, it did, not, it did not occur to him not to say anything at all. He just wanted to, to say something, and so he's like, okay, it's good that we're here. Now, he has learned some things, right? So the first thing that he says is Lord. So in other words, I am submitting to you. I, I, I know where we are in the pecking order. I'm, I'm submitting to you. It is good that we are here. Okay? It's good that we're here. And, and these words, if you want, because remember the last time Peter made a suggestion to Jesus? He's like, no, 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 this will not happen. Now he's learned. If you want, 
we can build three tents, a massive swing and a miss. Why, why does this incident happen? Historically, why is this important for us to understand why it's significant then and why it's significant now? Well, it's critical for people to understand both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. You understand when I say deity? Should I say deity? Yeah, deity? Okay. It's critical for people to understand the humanity and deity of Jesus. This was the only time his deity was on full display prior to the resurrection. His disciples would have been familiar with him as a human being, someone that got tired and needed to sleep, someone that needed to eat, someone that was frustrated with him when, when he said, oh, you have little faith, someone that would get angry. And, and so there, were, there was a lot of humanity where they were understanding that Jesus was a man just like them. But there was a sense in which God in that moment needed to validate who Jesus was. This was only the second time that God would have spoken audibly. The first time was at Jesus' baptism where he says almost exactly the same thing, where he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and it ends there. It's important because in Jewish culture, the idea of witnesses was important. Many times Jesus would talk about and, and was challenged by the Pharisees where they said to him, you cannot be your own witness. And so this is an identification by God the Father that Jesus is who he says he was. This was an experience that was confirmed in a multi-sensory way. It was confirmed visually through the transfiguration. It was confirmed tactily through the, the cloud that they felt and audibly through the voice that they heard. The supernatural light that emanates only from Jesus is showing them that he is different, that he is unique. They see Jesus in his terrifying, brilliant deity and his authority. In that moment, they understand that Jesus is not just one of the prophets and teachers and holy men. He is the Son of God. He is the embodiment of the good news. He is the King of the new kingdom that He is coming to establish. Now, they've seen Him reign over nature when He calmed the storm. They've seen Him reign over disease when He's healed people. They've seen Him reign over demons. They've even seen Him reign over death when the same three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were in the room when He raised that young girl from the dead. But this is where they realize that we're not just dealing with a man that is used by God. We are looking at a man who is God. Now, did they put two and two together in that moment? No, they didn't. They understood that, and we'll look at some of Peter's sermons and letters later on where we see, and this is the good news for Peter, he finally got it. It took him 50 years, but he finally got it. The unveiling of Christ's deity is the exclamation point of Peter's confession. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. Oftentimes, Jesus would say to his detractors, if you've seen the Son You've seen the Father. And so the disciples are putting two and two together with these kind of mystical clues that are coming together at this point. The disciples even see that they glimpse that death is not going to be final for Jesus, but they obviously don't get it at the time. Because in Mark's account in verse 10 of chapter 9, it says, so they kept the matter to themselves, this whole thing about what happened and what Jesus was talking about, questioning what rising from the dead could mean. I mean, understand this, 
If someone is saying to you that, in, that I will be put to death and three days later I will rise from the dead and that had never happened before, you don't have a framework for this. We sit on the other side of this and we can see that as a prophetic word made sure, but for them, they were like, what? What is happening here? It's a sign of separation and continuation for the disciples. Now, this is what I want to know. How did they know it was Elijah and Moses? Were they wearing name tags? Like, I mean, there's two guys. Like, how do you know that's Elijah and Moses? Did Moses have the two tablets? Were standing there like this? Yeah, this is me, these stone tablets, you know. Was Elijah like in a chariot of fire? Like, like, how did they know? I think part of how they knew that it was Moses and Elijah was not so much by what they looked like, but by the conversation they were having with Jesus. Oh, oh, now we can understand that this is Moses and this is Elijah. Moses was symbolic or represents the law. And Jewish people would have been very familiar with this idea of going up on a mountain, a cloud covering the mountain, and something dramatic happening, because that's exactly what happened when Moses brought the law. It was a sense in which Moses went up to the mountain and came down with what we now know are the Ten Commandments. So it's important because what God is saying is there's, there's a separation where Jesus is different to, but a continuation where Jesus is continuing the ministry of the law and the prophets. Elijah is symbolic not just of a prophet, but of all the prophets of God that spoke of a Messiah that would come to free God's people, a Messiah that would come to, uh, to remedy the injustices, a Messiah that would come to make Israel what Israel was always intended to be. Now, Jesus uses this term often. And in Matthew 5, verse 17, he says to the people, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, I have come to fulfill them. Now Jesus says this just after the Sermon on the Mount, which we understand the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and he says this just after the Sermon on the Mount, but on the Sermon on the Mount, what he does is he's, he's redefined the kingdom of God. He's saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. He, he's taken what people understand about strength and power and he shifted that in people's minds. And he's saying this is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. We, show, we, we understand here that Jesus is greater than Moses because he, unlike any other human being, fulfilled every aspect of the law. No other human being has been able to do that. Not only was he able to fulfill every aspect of the law, but he paid the price for us not fulfilling the law. Jesus is greater than Elijah because he is the fulfillment of the prophetic promise. Elijah was a road sign pointing to what would come after him. And Jesus is the reality of that. We, if we're on our way to San Diego or San Francisco and we see a sign that says San Diego, we don't stop the car and camp there and say we're here. And that's what Elijah was. He's saying it's coming. It's going to be there. We follow the signs of the prophetic voice. The transfiguration answers this question, which is a question that was important to the Israelites then. It's a question that is important to us now. Who has supreme power and final authority in the people of God? Is it Moses the law? Is it Elijah the prophets? Or is it Jesus Christ? No, it is Jesus Christ. And so we understand in this, in this moment of separation that Jesus is not just one of. 
He's not just another prophet. He's not just another teacher. He's not just another holy man. He is the risen Son of God, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession after His death and resurrection. So when we see Jesus in His glory, for us these days, it does three things. It confirms our identity, it confirms our purpose, and it confirms our posture. So our identity is confirmed when in verse 5 he says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, beloved is not a word we use much anymore. I mean, I don't say to my wife, Hello, beloved. You know, I don't know, maybe you guys do that. It's, uh, that's fine if you do, um, I guess. You know, we, we use kind of more, more kind of intimate words. And, and, and beloved is, is kind of a weak translation. This is my precious. This is my unique. This is the son on whom all my affection rests. When, even now, when my dad talks to me, he calls me Nikomo. Um, and my name is Nicholas. And people call me Nick. But my dad calls me Nikomo. It means my Nick. There's a sense of ownership and affection. And that's what God is speaking. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. How does this confirm my identity? When we hear God the Father speak over the son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, is because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And any Christ follower that has put his faith in Jesus is a son and daughter of the living God that has the privilege to hear those same words. My Lisa, my Priscilla, my David. That's what we have the privilege of hearing. Paul tells the Roman church, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons or children by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Dad. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might be glorified with Him. We covered this last week about the idea of carrying our cross. There's a sense in which, I mean... We understand God to be powerful. We understand God to be the one that spun the universe into existence. We, we understand God to be the one that shattered the bondage of sin over us. And yet, we, when we are in times of pain or when we're scared, if any of you are parents and there's, there's a sense in which your children are scared, and especially if you're as buff as Neil, they don't cry, they don't cry out, Hey, buff dad, uh, owner of CrossFit. No, in their pain and in their fear, what do they say? Dad. And that's what we can say because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We can say, Abba, Father, because we are co-heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. I guess the question is, though, do we respond to Jesus' invitation to go up the mountain? I am. I was talking earlier about the difference in motivation when you're a young child and when you're a teenager. Um, and, uh, and I would ask my, my daughters, hey, I'm going, do you want to come with? And when they were younger, they were like, sure, let's go. Um, and now it's like, hey, do you want to come with? Well, where are we going? Are we going to the Home Depot? Nah. 
Well, we could go and do something after that. Well, like what? Well, like what will we, are we going to go to Jamba Juice after that? Can we go to Jamba Juice, in and out? Can we do, um, no, no, I just want you to be with me. Nah, I'm good. I'll just stay here, you know. Now, I understand that. It's a, it's a necessary part of growing up, of creating distance and, and developing your own identity. But, but there's a sense in which Jesus is inviting us, just like he did Peter, James, and John, to a mountain where hidden glory will be revealed. And he does that every day. He does that in the invitation to be found in his word. He does that in the invitation for prayer. He does that in, in, in the invitations of silence and solitude. He does that in the invitation of Sabbath. He does that in the invitation, and this is harder, of fasting. He does it in the invitation of generosity. He does it in the invitation of worship. There are so many invitations that Jesus is saying, Peter, James, John, come with me. And you'll, there, there will be a hidden glory that will be revealed to you. And what we say is, well, like, what else is going to, like, well, what else? We're like, like, what's in it for me? That's not a bad question. But what Jesus is asking is, come and be with me. And if we respond, yes, we don't know necessarily what will happen. I don't know if those guys would have followed Jesus if he had told them what was going to happen. But when we respond to Jesus' invitation to the, mount, to the mountain, we don't know what kind of hidden glory we'll see. Behold, what manner of love is this that we should be called children of God, for that is what we are. When we, when we see Jesus in who he truly is, then we understand who we are. Because part of the joy of being on the mountain with Jesus is that we get to glimpse a little bit of our own transformation. We are reminded through the word and through prayer and through meditation that once we were darkness and we have been made light. That we were once um, agents of disobedience, but now we have the power to remain firm and say no to sin. Once we were aliens, but now we are citizens of the household of God. Once we were enemies, now we are children. Once we were wounded, now we've been healed. Once we were stuck in cycles of sin, now we are joyfully resisting. Once we were controlling, now we are flexible. Once we were fearful, now we are confident. About two months ago, I was sitting in my backyard, which is kind of my mountain invitation. And I was writing in my journal, and I said this to God. I said, I don't know whether I'm just getting old or whether I am actually changing. Like I'm, I, I can see the way in which you have shaped me but I'm scared that part of it is just because I'm old. Uh, that, that the things that used to bother me don't bother me anymore. The, the areas in which I used to grab control, I don't need to grab control anymore. And he, and he said to me, Nixon doesn't go away because you get older. That day by day, glory to glory, faith to faith, as the Spirit shapes you into being more like Jesus. Just keep coming to the mountain. So now I realize that I'm old and I'm changing. Okay. <laughs> the second thing that happens is that our purpose is confirmed. While Peter is babbling 
about, and I get this, trust me, I get this. Okay, let's build either a monument. I don't know what he was thinking. I, I, I don't understand what he was thinking. What are you going to do with these three tents? You know what I mean? Are you just going to stay there? Are we building like a new condo development here? Like Peter's going to be the head of the HOA. What is happening here? You know, um, maybe he just wants to build a monument and actually say, um, these tabernacles are here because this is what happened. So, so in other words, it's part of Israelite history where we would build a monument and say, in this place, this, these three tents, they're here because this is what happened. It could also be that maybe Peter just wanted to stay there because Jesus had been very clear about what happens when you come down from the mountain and what was going to happen to Jesus. So maybe this was that Peter hadn't learned as much as we were hoping he had learned. And he was saying, let's just, let's just hang here. Um, and, and, you know, and Moses and Elijah are here. God speaks, confirms Jesus' identity, but adds purpose. Listen to him means obey him. That means that there is an instruction or direction to come. You don't say to someone, listen to me or listen to them and then walk off. Neil, listen. Okay. No, there's a sense in which something else is coming. What else is coming? And so this, this kind of listening is an active listening. It's not the kind of passive listening where we put on our headphones and we listen to music. It's active because we're awaiting further instructions. So we're, we're, God is saying to his disciples, listen to Jesus. There will be further instruction. There will be further direction. Now, while it's true that our greatest calling is to be with Jesus... There is a being with Jesus while he is on mission reconciling the world to himself. I'm going to say that again. Our greatest calling, yes, is to simply be with Jesus. But what is Jesus doing? He is reconciling all things to himself and he is building the church. Therefore, if we are to be with him, what are we doing? We are doing the same thing that he is doing. We are reconciling all things to Jesus and we are building the church. This is not new. Jesus was saying, well, what are the greatest commands? Love God and love your neighbor. There is a sense in which there is an active, purposeful identity that we have received as sons and daughters of the living God. If my identity is a son of God or daughter of God through the grace of God, then my purpose is to make that known and to love my neighbor. Jesus said this to the first disciples, come follow me. Did the sentence end there? No, it didn't. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's a sense of being with Jesus and also working with Jesus in the sense of what he is doing. Now, this is obedience that comes not out of dominance or fear, but obedience that comes out of love. You've heard this before. Some of you have been in my home with my dog, Bono. And, and now that the girls aren't there and they haven't been there for a couple of days, they're not going to be there. He has a, had a massive love deficit right now, you know. And so he just stands, I mean, sits there and he just waits because he's not allowed in my study. And he just waits and he's just waiting. And all he's waiting for is acknowledgement and love, you know. And, and my wife says, well, you know, he listens to you, he's obedient to you, but he doesn't love you. And I'm like, I don't care. 
I just care that he listens to me, you know? That's what I care about. I'm like, he loves you, but he doesn't listen to you, you know? Now, we are not dogs. Okay, surprise, okay? Our obedience to Jesus comes out of his love and affection for us. It doesn't, it's not there to prove our love to Jesus. Because of who we are, we are purpose-created beings. And so Jesus understands that the way in which we are best loved is feeling secure in the sense that we've had our sins forgiven and we can do nothing about that, but that we also live a purposeful, joyful life. That is what obedience out of love is. Because of my love for you, Jesus, I want to love my neighbor. Because of my love for you, I want to make fishes. I want to be a fisher of men. I said this before, you cannot have spiritual formation without mission, and you cannot have mission without spiritual formation because the one is fueled to the other. In other words, when we go out there and we declare the greatness of our God and King, people look at our lives and see how formed we are by the person that we claim to be King of our lives, and they are putting the two things together. And the most powerful form of mission is where our spiritual formation matches those two. Now, mission fuels spiritual formation in the sense that I need to be with Jesus in order to be able to have the strength to live in the world that he's called me to live in a way that I can be identified as a Christ follower by my decisions, by my choices. But I also need to be found on that mountaintop with Jesus, fueling my tank for that which he's called me to do. Spiritual formation fuels mission. Mission fuels spiritual formation. That is where purpose, where our purpose is reminded. Our posture is confirmed. Thirdly, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Now, this is another thing that I struggle with in the context of kind of biblical narratives. Anytime someone is terrified or struck with fear, what do angels or people say? What's the first thing they say? Don't be afraid. Does that, has that ever helped anybody? Have you ever been terrified and someone says to you, don't be afraid? And you're like, oh, oh, thanks. Yeah, that's great. I'm so much better now. It also helps with angry people, by the way. Try this. You know what I mean? Just calm down. Just calm down. Oh, that's what I need to do. So thank you so much. I didn't realize that all I needed to do was calm down. Oh, I didn't realize that all I needed to do was to not be afraid when the person that I've been living with for the last three years just suddenly becomes this nuclear bomb of light. No, that's fine. I'll just chill and we'll be fine, you know. They fell on their faces and were terrified because they realized that this wasn't a man. 1 Peter 5, this is Peter writing 40 to 50 years later to the church. This is beautiful. He says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand so that at the proper time he may, exalt, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I can't say that this is a direct connection to what Peter experienced on that Mount of Transfiguration. But there is, there is such an amazing gift of grace that should humble us because none of us deserve this gift of grace. You know, it's, um, 
I don't know if you've seen people that like have paid for a business class seat and people that have been upgraded, right? There's just a massive difference in attitude, right? So the one is like a very entitled kind of attitude, like the guy will come in and he'll take off his coat and he'll just stand there and, you know, the, um, the flight attendant, I know, because can't, I can't remember what's the wrong thing to call him now, but, um, but the flight attendant will take it and will hang it up and whatever. And, uh, and when I got like upgraded once, I'm taking off my jacket and then he's helped me take it off and I'm like, what is happening here? <laughs> What is going on, you know? And I'm like, where are you taking my jacket? He's like, I'm just hanging this up, Mr. Salters. I'm like, oh, he knows my name? This is amazing, you know? He says, would you like an aperitif? Because this was Air France. And I'm like, oh, yes, of course I will. And then I looked up, what is an aperitif, you know? And there's the sense in which we act differently when we feel like we deserve something or we feel like something has been given to us as a gift, And the way in which we fulfill our purpose in the context of this world is if we act entitled, there is no way that people are going to be drawn to our humble Savior. If we feel like the reason we have this message is because we don't do or do certain things, that is not going to be attractive to people. The reason that we reach out to our neighbors in love, the reason that we want to be fishers of men is because we want other people to taste of the undeserved grace and mercy of our loving Father. That's why. A humble posture makes our purpose more effective. There is absolutely nothing that makes us worthy to receive this gift. Now, the thing is, is that they had seen Jesus, but you know what is a greater gift? The greater gift is that Jesus sees us, is that he touches us like he touched the disciples, is that he raises us up, lifts us up, and he walks down into the valley of mission with us. That is the greater gift. I mean, can you imagine seeing that? And then Jesus comes to you, touches you. He says, don't be afraid. When they lifted their eyes, this is my favorite part of this whole scripture, They saw nothing but Jesus. They saw no one but Jesus only. Their their attention and affection was just filled with who Jesus was. Bruner in his commentary on Matthew says this, For Jesus shone not just to shine, not just to impress, not even in the final analysis just to make us obedient or trembling, but especially to help us up, to put us on our feet, to enable us to breathe again so that we can be obedient to his word and so that we can listen to him. He knows we can't do it on our own. And so that's why he sees us, he touches us, he lifts us up and he walks down with us. Our posture is communal. Bruder again says, there is no dependable listening to him that is not at the same time listening with them. There is no dependable listening to him that is not at the same time listening with them. You know, if if I was God and all of you are breathing a huge sigh of relief that I'm not, but if I was God, I I wouldn't have included James and John in this because they didn't say anything. They were smart enough not to. I probably would have just said, Peter, really, again? You know, I, I probably, because he was the one that was saying these things, I probably would have, would have said to him, directed it to him. But no, the voice is for everyone to hear. And I don't even have time to go into how this affects 
um, James and John's writings about what they saw on the mountain. God's voice is addressed to us as a community. We covered this in the first two weeks. John Calvin says there is no such thing as a solitary Christian. When we listen to Jesus, it's not personal, it's communal. This is the best way to avoid an error in what we believe Jesus has said. We're sitting playing cards the other day and we, we had Alexa on and, um, and Aaron was singing the lyrics of a song and all of us look at her and saying, what was that? And she'd been singing it for ages like that. And it took the rest of us listening to her saying, that's not what the song actually says. You, you guys know um, Message in a Bottle by Police? Some of you are way too young to know that. So it's, it's like saying, and years have passed since I broke my nose. No, it's, it's a year has passed since I wrote my note, right? So here we are listening and we're singing, a year has passed since I broke my nose. Now, all of you have done that. We've sung lyrics to songs and then someone has said to us, I don't think that's what that lyric is, you know? Are you totally embarrassed? Yeah, you are. Are you grateful that someone has reminded you what the real lyric is? And part of the understanding of our posture being confirmed is that we are often in danger of not hearing what the Father has said. And we need other people in our community to help us to make sure that we don't mishear. What were they in danger of not hearing? Well, they were in danger of not hearing that Jesus is the Lord of the church, the cornerstone, the foundation. That's what Jesus wanted to communicate to them. What were they in danger of hearing? That the way of discipleship is not through authority and power and position, but the way of discipleship is through carrying your cross and through service. What are we in danger of mishearing? What is our personal bent? Maybe it's people get what they deserve. Maybe it's that justice and mercy are two separate things. What are we in danger of mishearing? What is our personal bent where we need the community to come around us? We are the church, the temple of God. He dwells in us. I mean, Peter was made leader of something he had no clue what was happening. Imagine trying to explain to Peter like Jesus did. I will tear down this temple and in three days I'll build it up again. No one understood what that meant. Certainly not Peter understood what it meant. What it meant was what Peter wrote 50 years later. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. There's that word stone, Petra. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Lisa, you can come up. The church and our church is meant to be a beacon of light in a dark world. Meant to be a place that reminds everyone that we can be free completely from the bondage of self and sin. That there is someone that can free us from the idols of autonomy, from oppression, from shame, from guilt from self-centered living and selfish living. We have become fellow agents of transfiguration. We work with God so that injustice is transfigured to justice. We work with God so that hate is transfigured to love. We work with Him so that selfishness is transfigured into neighbor love. We work with Him so that shame 
and guilt is transferred into forgiven acceptance. We work with Him so that we glorify Him in our words, in our actions, so that we understand that we can be a compassionate, caring, joyful people. Let's pray. Father, will you help us to gaze at the beauty of your Son, at His glory, at His humility, at His power, at His kindness, at His authority and His joy. May your Spirit that dwells inside us as a seal of your adoption enable us to stand firm in our identity as children of God and co-heirs with Jesus. May your Spirit enable us to listen to your invitation to be with you. May you empower a humble commitment to the church that you are building, an imperfect church, but a church of love, humility, and purpose. Father, may we do all these things in the power of your Spirit for the glory of the Father in the very beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.